So let's give a hand for the Tabers as they come this morning. Thank you. Good morning. Um, let me start by introducing my wife, Lisa. You want to just stand up and say hi? I, I like that uh, expectations for the kids at church. You know, actually, those are good expectations for the church, period. Amen. Respect, participate, and be a friend. Man, if, if every church did that, it'd be a different world. Um, so that's, that's great. I really like that. And it is good to be here. It's, it is a little bit um, the discombobulated thing. I, I do feel that going on in, in ways. We've, we've only been back in the U.S. for about a week and a half and, and trying to get our heads wrapped around all that and everything that has to happen in that time. And um, it's, it's, it can be a little uh, crazy and we're trying to figure out where we're at. So, um, you know, I, I thinking about that. So uh, let me ask you this question. Who are you? Who's Portview? It didn't work. Pastor Mark told me it was in a... So who's Portview? There you go. That's good. Okay. I, we were talking about this last night. And I said, well, I'll work it in in the beginning somewhere and see if they do it. But it's, it's, it's great to be here. Um, it is a thrill um, to be able to come and, and be a part of a church, uh, uh, visit a church that's, that's excited about missions and what God is doing. I saw you on your board out here, you had things up about Cambodia, and I'm sure Mark, uh, Pastor Mark and has talked about Cambodia before, so, um, but Cambodia is not a very big country, really. It's only about the size of the state of, of Oklahoma. We have about 16 million people who live there. It's right between Vietnam and Thailand, um, and it's a country that in the last uh, 50 years has seen incredible tragedy and incredible change. You know, the tragedy comes from uh, the, the Vietnam War spilling over Cambodia's borders, igniting a civil war in the early, late 60s, early 70s that led to the Khmer Rouge coming to power under Pol Pot, who was in power for three years and in three years killed one quarter of the population of the country. One out of every four people killed in a three-year period. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of an imagination to realize the kind of destruction and heartache that's going to cause. And then that was followed up by continuing civil war all the way up until 1999. And it was only in 1999 that the final groups fighting the government finally surrendered. And since then, we've had relative peace and stability. It's, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I watched the news in the last year with all the things going on here in the States and the rioting and the different things. And I thought, wow, who would have thought it was safer and more stable in Cambodia <laughs> than in America? But so there we are. We've been a little bit more stable. But, um, and, and the changes, the incredible changes that have taken place. When we first went in 1994... Uh, we arrived and there was still the Civil War going on. You might have, if, on a good day, you might have two or three hours of electricity. You'd have uh, uh, maybe three or four or five restaurants in the capital city that were safe to eat in. Most of them you didn't want to chance it. Uh, a couple paved roads outside of the capital. No cell phone, no landline phones for the most part. We had a shortwave radio we would contact other people by to find out. You know, if fighting was moving into our area, we would go to sleep at night listening to the sound of artillery going off in the distance as part of the war. Today, you know, we get up, I go sit out on my balcony on my 14-story high-rise, uh, walk out from the air conditioning, sit on the balcony, and I can look out, see the skyline, see the big mall where the IMAX theater and the Krispy Kreme donut and the Cold Stone Creamery are, and uh, it's, it's just a different world. You know, the, the, the changes that have taken place there have been so rapid and so pervasive. 
It sounds great, sounds good, but you have to realize that that type of rapid change can be just as uh, mentally challenging for people as like a war. And to recover from any kind of a, uh, a traumatic experience, you need stability, and that's something Cambodia really hasn't had. It's changed so fast. And so the ongoing effects of, of that tragic past and these, and these rapid changes continues to be seen today. Today in Cambodia, over 47% of the population has unresolved post-traumatic stress disorder. And you can imagine the kind of things. We, we know, we probably all know somebody who's come back from the fighting in, in Iraq or Afghanistan and has had to deal with PTSD. Now imagine that almost every other person you meet is suffering from that. Over 40% have major anxiety disorders. Over 11% major clinical depression. Suicide is rampant. And, and, and there's no let up from that. Their religion doesn't help them. 95% of the people in Cambodia are Buddhist. And Buddhism is a religion that really offers no hope. It teaches you that your circumstances you're in now are your own fault from what you did in a previous life. You have no reason and no right to question it and try to make your situation better. You just need to bear it. And so you remain under oppressive regimes. You remain in, in, in corrupt situations. There's no hope. The word grace doesn't even exist in the Cambodian language uh, prior to Christians coming in and translating the Bible and needing a word for grace, and they had to make up a word for grace because the idea of, of God's unmerited favor is so foreign. There's so little hope. But... The good news is that things have changed also in the area of the church. Uh, when we arrived in January of 1994, there was almost no church. Uh, there was about 140 evangelical churches in the entire country. Um, today, there are almost 4,000 churches in Cambodia. So that's, that's something I could get excited about. I don't know about you, but that's something that's great. Uh, the things that have happened in the church have been amazing. Um, the changes that have taken place. But but that doesn't mean that it's all done. The, it, it, there's still that those Christians that make up those almost 4,000 churches make up less than 2% of the population of Cambodia. And there's still areas that have almost never heard the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I think they've probably heard the name of Jesus, but certainly not had a clear presentation of Jesus in the majority of the country still. We arrived in January of 1994 there, and we, since that time, we've done a lot of different things. We ran an orphanage of 120 kids for a few years. We've done church planting. But really, for the last 20 years or so, our primary responsibility has been as media ministries directors for the country of Cambodia. Now, that doesn't mean that I have my own TV station. I'm not, uh, you know, the host of the 700 Club of Cambodia, uh, nothing like that. Uh, but... Um, what media ministries really is, is just helping the church communicate God's love and grace more effectively with the world around them. And it looks different all the time. We've done everything from full-length evangelistic films that have been released in theaters to music videos, reaching out to youth, to children's radio programs, to distance education. You name it, we've probably done it at one point or another. But there's a few big areas that we've been involved with recently that take up the majority of our time. And one of them is our children's radio program, uh, which is called Nara and Grandpa Choi, and that was a very successful program that really spoke to the needs that, that kids had in Cambodia and the specific circumstances they were in, and we actually developed that out into a six-month 
uh, curriculum that would be used in churches or after school programs, a children's curriculum that's a discipleship oriented curriculum. And that's, that's been hugely successful. And now with, with COVID hitting, uh, we've had lockdowns and things there as well. And so the church has moved to um, a lot of online solutions in Cambodia, just like they did here. And so over the last year, we've moved Nara and Grandpa Choi into animated programs that are designed for use on not a broadcast quality great thing, but more like watching on YouTube on your phone. Uh, it was amazing how many times we'd see little kids running around watching uh, the phone, watching videos from their parents' cell phone. And so we said, well, we want to give them something good to watch. And so we've actually animated about half of the episodes of this children's program. And that's been really good. And we're looking at doing some more things uh, with that. We also work with a, a, a Christian radio station in Cambodia to help reach out beyond uh, the borders and beyond where we would normally be able to go. And that's been incredibly successful as well. We also do training for Christian leaders on media. We've uh, all kinds of different things, whether it's training how to use study Bibles and the fire Bible to training children's workers around the country for their ongoing ministry. All of those things are happening through media. We also do a lot with mentoring and training Christian leaders and missionaries in Cambodia because we've been there 27 years. We have a little bit more experience. And so we've been asked to take on some roles in mentoring new missionaries and helping them, not just in Cambodia, but in Laos, Vietnam, Thailand, and Myanmar as well. And so we do that regularly. Um, we also do um, a, a training for the Assemblies of God missions worldwide. And we do a lot of training on how to minister in a Buddhist context. Being a Buddhist country like Cambodia, there's a lot of things that uh, the gospel's the same no matter what, but how you present it changes because there's different understandings of different things. So for instance, if I wanted to tell you, you know, if I said, how, how would you share Jesus with someone? You might say, well, I'd go tell them, hey, if, you, uh, if, if, if you'd like to have eternal life, you can have, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so you can have eternal life and live with him. And that sounds really great. But to a Buddhist, number one, they're trying to get out of eternal life. They're stuck in an endless cycle of rebirth, so they don't want anything to do with that. Number two, they say, well, I don't, I don't have any sin. And number three, they say, if he died on the cross as a 30-year-old, he obviously had bad karma from a previous life. And if he didn't, what allows God who made so much suffering in this world? And he loves people. Love is a bad thing. Love is, love is greed of the heart. And that's something you don't want. So even just that general statement, that John 3, 16 gospel presentation doesn't work. And you have to change the way you present the gospel to be not a different gospel, but understood in their context. And so we do training for that um, around the world as well in, in uh, uh, the U.S. at a couple different of our, our universities here at the University of Valley Forge at uh, the Somebody's Got Theological Institute. Uh, we do it at, in Romania at a school. And we're very involved in raising up prayer support for the Buddhist world because none of this is going to change without God's people praying because we need the Holy Spirit. We need breakthroughs in the Buddhist world. And we really, really need your prayers. Um, so please uh, remember to pray for us, if nothing else, and pick up one of our prayer cards on the way out. Um, but part of our call is really about taking the gospel to where it's never been. And, and, and that's a lot of these things are necessary things to do, the training, the discipleship, the mentoring, and we want to do those things. 
uh, because it multiplies our ministry. But at the same time, we want to be a part of getting out to places where it's never been. And so we're actually involved in a new project that we're just starting up, uh, which is a, a heading up a church planting team in a city called Kaip in Cambodia. And I have a short video that I want to show you um, about that in just one second. Kite, just so you know, is one of the provincial capitals of Cambodia. We have 25 provinces. Over half of those provinces have no Assembly of God church, have never had an Assembly of God church. Kite is one of them, and we're pl- wanting to plant the first church there. So let's go ahead and show that video real quick, and then we'll pick it back up afterwards. Gaip is the provincial capital on Cambodia's southern coast. Once a glamorous resort for Cambodia's rich and famous, Gaip still bears the scars of the Khmer Rouge years and is still recovering from decades of war and violence. 95% of the Cambodian population of Gaip is Buddhist. The town is made up of fishermen, farmers, children, teenagers, and adults, almost all of whom have never had the chance to know Jesus. But imagine if that could change. There has never been an Assemblies of God church in the entire province of Kaip. But today, a church planting team is being formed to open this new area to the kingdom of God. With your partnership and support, imagine what God can do in Kaip. Your prayers and your support to make this happen that that community is actually it's not mentioned so much in the video but it also has a large muslim community in the in the city there so uh we need your prayers going into a new area like that and breaking through some of those barriers but how we respond to god's message and god's call you know like i said this is part of what we feel god's call is is to take the gospel where it's not been so um how we respond to that is is important, and I think we find a great illustration of that in the story of Jonah in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to, the, to Jonah, we're going to jump around in there a little bit. But Jonah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He's mentioned one other time, other than the book of Jonah that bears his name. He's mentioned in Second Kings chapter fourteen. He worked uh, or ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, under Jeroboam the second was a, the king at the time, and he was a wicked king. And Jonah prophesied that. They would recover territory, and it happened. Um, Later on, another prophet, Amos, comes and says, you're going to lose that territory. They lost it again. It's not like Jeroboam II was a good guy or anything. But Jonah had prophesied good things. It had come to pass, and so he had some standing. He had some status. Uh, He had some clout. uh, Probably was living a pretty good life with that. Um, He was... And you come to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Well, Nineveh was one of the greatest cities of the time. It was an up-and-coming city. It would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, one of the brutal, uh, brutal, brutal empire that's located in what today is Iraq. And the Ninevites had been fighting against Damascus, which was the northern kingdom of Israel's enemy to the north, um, so they were kind of like the enemy of my enemy, but, but nonetheless, they also were a threat to Israel. And they were a very violent people. They were known for their cruelty, more violent than any previous empire. They would totally destroy their enemies and exile any conquered people. So it was, it was just 
a, a, a really rough place and so evil that the evil had reached a level that God said, their evil has come up before me and I want you to go and call out against them what I'm going to tell you to say. And how does Jonah respond? In chapter 3 it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He basically said, well, that's a great idea, God, but I have other plans. And he literally went in the opposite direction as far as he could jumped on a boat, and set out for a place thousands of miles away. <laughs> not, not really what you think of with the prophet of God, but that's the way it went. And Jonah goes in the opposite direction. Why did he flee? Well, we, I, I'm sure there was a little bit of fear of going to someplace like Nineveh with the Assyrians. Uh, you know, they were violent. They were you know, not really that friendly or anything. They certainly didn't serve Jehovah, the, uh, you know, the God that Israel served, that we serve. But later in the book, it also says that part of the reason he didn't want to go is he didn't want to see them have the opportunity to repent. Basically, he was a bigot. He was a racist. He's like, I don't want those people, those Assyrians to hear and, and have the opportunity to be forgiven. Forget that. And unfortunately, ultimately, he ends up more concerned with his own comfort and safety than he does with the, the lives of the people in Nineveh. And so he jumps on this boat and takes off. And you guys know the story. God sends a storm that comes on the boat, and, and it's so bad that the, the, the sailors are freaking out. And, they, and they're like, um, they, the sailors remind me of the Cambodian people a lot, uh, just because the sailors all serve all these gods. And so they start calling out on all their various gods, you know, because they're afraid. And that sounds a lot like Cambodia. Uh, you know, all these different spirits that they call out to when they're in fear. And and so they're calling out to their gods, and they start casting lots, trying to figure out why this storm has come upon them. Apparently it's so severe and so out of control that they feel it's obvious it's some divine uh, action, and, and the lots fall in such a way that it indicates it's Jonah. They go to Jonah, and they say, who are you, and what have you done? He'd already told them he was running from his God. And Jonah says, well, I serve the God of heaven who created all the land and all the sea. And they're like, uh, you do what? <laughs> and they, they say, well, what did, you, what did you do? What do we have to do to get him to stop the, the, the storm? And he says, well, you know, if you throw me overboard, it'll stop. And they're like, well, wait a minute now. We're no dummies. We know that murdering someone is not good. So we don't want to do that. So they actually risk their lives to try to row him to shore so that they don't have to kill him. They put their own lives at risk to try to save this guy. And they can't make it, they can't do it, and they give up, and they're like, well, I don't know what to do. So finally, um, they, they pray, and they, uh, they ask God to forgive them for what they're going to do, and they throw Jonah overboard. And immediately, the sea becomes still. And in chapter 1, verse 16 it tells how they responded. It says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, they turned around. They're like, this is obvious. This is God. And it changed them. And then, you know, God sends the fish. It swallows Jonah, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days. And I'm sure that wasn't pleasant. It's not like the old Pinocchio movie where he's in there with the cat. You know, it's not that. <laughs> You know, you're taught, I mean, if you can imagine it, the, it, it is a small place. I'm sure it wasn't real spacious. You can, 
you know, being pressed up against things, no light. Imagine the smells you would experience, the, the sounds. You know, I hear my stomach when I eat like beans or something. Imagine what, the, what he's hearing inside the belly of this whale. And, and, and the acid and the humidity, the muscle movements of the fish, all those things. And yet it takes him three days to pray. I don't get that. He waits three days and finally after three days he prays. And he, his prayer is recorded in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And we're not going to take the time to read that. But, but the thing that's amazing, there's two things that are amazing about that, that, uh, that prayer. One is what he says. And the second one, which is even more amazing, is what he doesn't say. Because what he does say, he does acknowledge God is sovereign. And that God is everywhere and God is in control. But the thing that he never says is he never says he's sorry, he never apologizes, he never repents for not obeying God and going to Nineveh and instead running away. But God is a gracious God and God hears his prayer and gives him a second chance. And not all of our second chances start with with throwing up, but his did because the fish vomits Jonah up onto the beach. And it says in uh, chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, against it the message that I tell you. And this time, surprise, surprise, Jonah goes. And he gets there, but his heart really hasn't changed. He reminds me of those, those kids, you know, that it's... it's um, you know, you ever, you ever have a, a, a real strong-willed kid that you're dealing with and, and you're telling, they're, they're misbehaving in some way and you tell them to do something and they finally comply, but you can see in their eyes, they're complying on the outside, but they're still standing on the inside, right? And that's Jonah. He's doing that. He goes and he says, okay, I'll go, fine. And he goes and in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 4, he delivers the bare minimum message that God gave him. He, all he says for three days going through the city is, yet 40 days and then it will be overthrown. There's no, hey, repent and you might have a shot. There's no, you did this wrong. It's just, hey, judgment's coming. And that's it. And he walks through there for three days doing that. But the thing that's amazing is God's timing is such that this causes the greatest revival recorded in the Bible. An entire city, an entire city of pagan idol worshipers, one of the most violent empires, they turn around and all repent and fast and put on sackcloth and, and, and mourning and all this in hopes that God will have mercy on them. And the thing that I love about this, not just the people repent and put on sackcloth and and. and and uh, fast, not just the king, but the king orders that the animals are dressed in sackcloth and fast. Now, I don't know. I've never seen cows and pigs fasting in sackcloth. And I don't think you guys have ever had a revival where the dog, you have people bring their dogs and cats in to fast and pray. But apparently they were like, we're not taking any chances. The animals are going to fast and pray with us on this. And so they, they're all uh, doing this, they put on this, this, they all, uh, are repenting, put on sackcloth, they're fasting, they're praying out, calling out to God for mercy. And God relents in Jonah chapter three, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring on them. And he did not do it. The most incredible revival 
It's amazing. And how does Jonah respond? In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, God, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Little bit dramatic there. But that's Jonah. Even in the midst of this great revival, he's so ticked that it's successful, he says, I just want to die. What an attitude. This is the attitude he's had all along. It's a displeased attitude, ungrateful, angry, doing it only because he has to. And so Jonah goes outside of the city and sits down (coughs) to basically wait and see if God will destroy the, the, the people or not. Builds a little lean-to, and he's sitting there, and God decides to teach Jonah through an object lesson. And he allows this plant, this vine, to grow up and provide shade for Jonah. And it says that Jonah's real happy about the plant. He says, see, God has provided for me. Finally, I'm getting my due. And then overnight, God says, okay, and sends a worm to kill the plant. And the next day, the east wind comes up, and the plants died, and it falls over, and he's in the sun, and again, he's, he just loses it. And he's upset, he's very angry, and again, he says, I just want to die, just forget it, this is ridiculous. And finally, the book concludes with an exchange between God and Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 9, verses 9, and 10, 9, 9 through 11, um, Jonah's still angry, and God confronts him about it and says, how, how can you be angry and more concerned about that plant that died than the 120,000 people in that city? You know, whenever I read this story, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really drawn to the contrast between Jonah and the sailors and the sailors and the Ninevites. But really, the sailors really jump out at me a lot just... Like I said, they remind me of Cambodians, the way they they respond to things. Um, Like I said, Cambodia, the religion, it's very driven by fear. People will cry out to these different uh, spirits that are in the area to, for relief for things. There was a little restaurant I used to go get breakfast at, and, and just in the space of this one restaurant, there were like four different idols, four different altars that they would offer things on to appease different spirits so that those spirits wouldn't harm them. Why did Jonah run from God in the first place? Well, it was fear, prejudice, didn't want to dis- be disrupted or discomforted in any way. That's a far cry from what the sailors did. The sailors went out of their way to try to save Jonah. We have a friend in Cambodia named Samat, and Samat is a young man that we met when we first went because he was one of the kids at our orphanage that we ran when we first arrived in Cambodia. And Samat came to the orphanage when he was 
uh, in grade school, before, before the Assemblies of God ever took over that running that orphanage, it was actually a government-owned orphanage. He was already there. His parents were dead. He had lived for a while with a lady in his village who was kind of a foster mother to him because that's just the way they would do things. You know, if uh, a family died, the parents died, a neighbor would take in the kids until something could be arranged. And, and so he, that's all he had. But when the government set up this orphanage, he was allowed to enter the orphanage, and so he was there. And he was there for a while, and um, he began to have these problems, these chest pains. And chest pains and, and then like loss of energy, and the pains were so bad that he couldn't even sleep laying down like a normal person. They would prop up a bed kind of at an angle, like a 45-degree angle, 60-degree angle, and he would just kind of lean over against it and, and sleep like that because it was too painful in his chest. And they didn't know exactly what to do, and so... They took him to uh, a traditional healer <clears throat> because there wasn't much medical uh, available back then. And a traditional healer is kind of like a, a witch doctor you'd think of. And they went to this guy and he said, well, he has pains. It's probably because you, um, you walked over a place where an evil spirit was. Or maybe you urinated on a tree that was sacred or something like that. And this is literally what they told him. And so the, the staff of the, the orphanage says, well, we want to help you. So they helped them get a chicken and sacrifice a chicken at the sacred tree that he must have urinated on. And I, just things like that, because that's what you did. They didn't have any other options. Because they live in fear of what these spirits might do to them if they displease them in some way. Just like the sailors on the boat and... and um, you know, he, he would get a little bit better for a time and it would kind of come and go, this whole lack of energy, this pain in his chest. And, and he would, they attributed it to spirits, you know, being appeased or not appeased. And so this went on for a while. And then in 1991, the Assemblies of God took over the operation of that orphanage. And um, Samat began going to church with the missionary on Sunday, uh, a church in the, in the village. And, and doing English classes with him afterwards, not because he was so much interested in, in learning about God, but because uh, Sundays was when you'd, the, they'd have the orphans do the chores at the orphanage, and he wanted to get out of the chores. So if he went to the church and went to the class, he didn't have to do chores. Sounds like a teenager. And so he, he went, and that's what he did. And, but as time went by, he became more interested in what they were saying, and he wanted to learn more. And so finally, in 1993... As 15-year-old, he became a Christian. We arrived in January of 94, and um, you know he's just a new Christian at the time, and he wanted to study the Bible more, and wanted to be. He got involved in different church activities and outreaches and things. And obviously, stopped going and offering chickens at the tree. But about that same time, we had a medical team come from the states um, to, uh, to, to do a village outreach and then also check out the kids, how they were doing. And this nurse listened to his heart and said, there's something wrong with your heart. And they started doing tests and got him to the Capitol and got a UN doctor to take a look at him. And sure enough, he had a bad heart valve, uh, that was causing these problems. It was something that was threat life threatening, but there was nothing, no way to treat it in Cambodia. So they didn't really know what to do. And this nurse went back to the U S to the hospital she worked at, started talking to a cardiologist there, talking to the hospital. To make a long story short, she got the cardiologist to donate his, his work, the hospital to donate everything they needed, and even got an airline to donate tickets to fly him to the U.S. and have heart valve replacement surgery 
in the U.S. And so he did. He went in 1995. He flew to the U.S. He's 17 years old. He went in February. He, had, he stayed with a Cambodian family in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, there was a large com- Cambodian community there. And so he stayed with them, had the heart valve replacement surgery a month or two later. And then he was recovering. And he'd been there by this point for about three months. And the family it was a Cambodian couple who were Christians, didn't have any children of their own. And they said, hey, you know what? We'd like you to stay. We'll adopt you. We'll help you to stay in America. And this is, a, this is like dream come true for most Cambodians because the war is still going on in Cambodia. There's no education opportunities. There's nothing, no real future for them there. And he said, you know, I'm really touched by what you're saying, but I feel God's calling me to be a pastor in Cambodia. I'm going to go back. And he went back. He gave up every Cambodian's dream to go back to this country in the middle of a war, to go back to an orphanage, no family, no real future options, because he felt God was calling him to do it. He goes back, finishes high school, ends up going to the university. The Bible school opened. Someone's got Bible school. He went there, finished there, started pastoring a church in the capital city. Then he got the opportunity to go do some more studies, went and got his master's degree in Singapore, and again, came back and became the dean of our Bible school, uh, started doing church planting. He eventually became the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Cambodia. Um, And now today he's also still pastoring a church that we're involved with him, working with him at that church. And then also uh, he's the director of an organization called Cambodia Global Action, which is um, uh, uh, the relief arm of the Assemblies of God in Cambodia, doing development work, uh, helping out uh, in villages and things to to raise the standards and and provide for at-risk kids and things. Uh, Just he's done amazing things. He's married, has kids. But God's calling Samat to be a pastor in Cambodia. That, that, you know, he, he had these opportunities to stay, but he came back instead. It's kind of the opposite side of the same coin that Jonah faced. Jonah wanted to run from God's call to avoid discomfort. Samat was tempted to abandon God's call to embrace a comfortable lifestyle in America. Jonah ended up running while Samat embraced God's call. As a result, Jonah ended up bitter and alone, and Samat gained a family, a ministry, and the joy of being a part of what God is doing in Cambodia today. It's ironic, really, that in the story of Jonah with the sailors and and the people of Nineveh, that the one person... Well, that all the people without God, the sailors and the people of Nineveh, readily submitted to him, readily submitted to God, and the one who had a relationship with God refused to submit to God. Um, The sailors were willing to go out of their way and endanger themselves to try to save Jonah, but Jonah was unwilling to do anything to save the people of Nineveh. And I wonder sometimes who we're more like. Where do we fit in that story? We're real ready to be comfortable, and God has called us all. God called us all to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
And the question is, are we more concerned about our own agenda and our own comfort like Jonah? Or are we ready to gratefully embrace God and his call to us like Samat did? How committed are we to see the call of God fulfilled in our lives? And what kind of an attitude do we bring into it? Do we do it joyfully? Or do we act like Jonah, who eventually went, but only because he had to and his bitterness stuck around and he ended up angry and discontented instead of coming out with gratitude and joy in what God was doing? He missed out on the joy of being a part of the greatest revival in the Bible. How often do we, ah, it's missions May again? (sighs) All right, fine. If we're here, we'll we'll do it. Okay. Um, You know, that shouldn't be our attitude with missions. That shouldn't be our attitude when we have opportunities to serve in the church. That shouldn't be our attitude when we do things. Your theme of of love does, that's, that's it. I was talking to your pastor last night and when we were having dinner and he was telling us about the, the number of people who volunteered to work with the children and things. That's, that's amazing. That's great. And I can tell you, you're the exception, unfortunately. But that speaks to you and your heart. And I, I want to encourage you and challenge you that when God calls you to do something, it, it may be tough. It may be hard. It may be painful. It's going to be uncomfortable. But if you do it and embrace it and do it with gratitude, it'll be life-changing. Not just for those around you, but for you too. You want to have life full of joy? That's how you do it. Don't fight God. Go with him. I want to thank you for the opportunity you've given me to come and share with you about Cambodia and for your support of what we're doing in Cambodia. And I want to ask you, please, go with us one more step and pray with us for the people of Kite, for that new church plant, and continue to pray for the people of Cambodia and for the Buddhist world. Because nothing's going to happen without that. We need you. We need you to partner with us and walk along with us. We can't do it alone. And God never intended for us to do it alone. He intended us to do it with you and with you and with you and with you. Embrace what God's doing and be a part of it. It'll change your life. Thanks so much for letting me come and share with you. Pastor Mark. Thank you for challenging us today. Um, we need that um, to see the truth, the reality. And uh, so thank you for boldly uh, proclaiming God's word to us today. And partnering with these guys is important. I told Troy this morning, and it was, this is my oversight. I said to him, I actually asked Mitch this morning, I said, we support the Tabers, don't we? And he's like, uh, no. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I've known this guy for, not like, 13, 14 years. And so we are, as a church, as of today, uh, supporting them from our Kingdom Builders ministry. I told them, I said, don't leave without your account number, which no missionary would ever do (laughs) Um, without giving your account number. And we can do that because of the generosity that we all have towards our monthly Kingdom Builders giving. But you're going to have another opportunity in addition to that um, to partner with these guys as they go to 
to uh, Kype and do all the rest of the stuff. We sat up till oh, dark 30 last night talking about all the things they're involved in right now. And um, the way we can help partner with that right now, in addition to taking a prayer card and praying for them. And, and a little side note about that. Somebody came to my office recently and they go, Pastor, look at your windowsill. So my windowsill around my whole, my whole desk is all prayer cards of all missionaries. So when I pray for the missionaries, I just turn around and I, I pick the cards. And I pray for the missionaries. And so what a great thing. Have a pile of those things and put theirs on the top right now. And, uh, you know, mine just literally sit and somebody say, well, your office is messy. Oh, it's not messy. That's a reminder of all the people to pray for. If I put it away, I'd forget. And so, uh, so grab their prayer card. So we can, pray, we can pray with them, but we can also help support them right now. They've got a, every time they come back, and they won't tell you this, but every time they come back, their budget goes up. Um, you, you were really interesting. You talked about it yesterday, the way a missionary budget works. He goes, basically, it's a, it's a church budget. A little portion is a salary. The rest is all the ministry they do. Because when they're asked to do things like, hey, would you go do this and would you go do that? Um, here's how it works in the Assemblies of God. Nobody says, and we'll pay for it. It's like when they say, would you come do it? Would you come to India and teach this class? You go, yes. Well, that means you also have to pay to get there. And so that's just the way it works in our system. And so one of the ways we can help is we can help support them uh, right now through an offering. And if you're visiting, what we always do is we take an offering um, for our guest missionaries, and 100% goes to them. And because of COVID, we don't pass a plate anymore, but you all have envelopes in front of you. And you can write out a check, or you can put cash in an envelope, write Tabor or Cambodia on it. And a lot of you give online. Just go online, and just when you, do the, when you give, just type Tabor or Cambodia, and 100% of that will go to them. Um, so we can help support them in this missionary. One thing I love about the Assemblies of God, um, we, you guys might not know this, some of you are visiting, we are the world's largest Protestant organization or denomination. Um, we're the world's, it's not a district council, the world's second largest church. So I think the reference was the Roman Catholic Church has more people. Um, but we're number two on the planet. We're only 100 and some years old. We're number two on the planet. And the reason we're number two on the planet is because the generosity of our people and the willingness of the Jonas, not the Jonas, of the, say, who would it be in your story? The willing Jonas, not the unwilling Jonas, <laughs> the Jonah counterparts who say, send me to Nineveh. I, will, I want to go to Nineveh. And so um, the people who are willing to go and the people who are willing to send them. And because of that, we've got people in every country on the planet, almost, unless we're certain ones we just can't get people into. Um, because of political reasons. And so you guys are part of something way bigger than yourselves. We're part of 75 million members globally. 75 million in every country on the planet because really because of American pastors, uh, missionaries willing to go to all these different countries. And so that's awesome. So Jesus, thank you that as we kick off Missions Month, um, we get to start with a foreign missionary we get to start with the Tabers today. You know, good friends of ours and good friends of this church. They've been here before, and we're so we love them because their consistency in being boots on the ground in a really, really tough place. But Lord, what a thing to see in one lifetime from 140 churches to 4,000 churches across the country, and the work is not even near done. But Lord, thank you for the phenomenal growth of the kingdom of God in Cambodia. And Lord, we would pray that as the Tabers spend this one year itinerating, going to churches like ours all across America, that Lord, you would use them to stir up the hearts of your church here. 
Lord, we've been so fixated on all the COVID stuff and all the stuff going on in our country, Lord, and that stuff is real. But, Lord, it's easy for us to forget that that the work of the kingdom is going on all around the globe. And, Lord, thank you for reminding our hearts today. And, Lord, now we would pray your blessing, your richest blessing of, of protection, of provision, Lord, of grace, all the grace that Tabor's need. Lord, pour out your presence upon them today so as they go forward and get over this jet lag, they go forward, that, Lord, they can minister in the strength of the Holy Spirit. They can be revived by the churches as they also come to restore and renew the churches. So, Lord, um, bless them, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, stand with me this morning. You're a quiet group today. Y'all, did you all spend all day outside yesterday and you're too sore to stand up because you did yard work? Josh, who told me that? He's like, I can't move. (laughs) Dragging tree limbs all day. So, anyway... God is good. So glad to see you today. Got awesome things that God is doing in our church. Next week, Suzanne and I are going to co-preach the message about an awesome missionary named Lillian Trasher. So we're going to talk about that as our, as our combined one. And the week after that, my first point was your last words of your sermon, Troy. We're all called. And you'll see what that's all about. And so lots of great things coming up. Teen Challenge coming up. It is going to be a wonderful month of May. So Jesus, I pray your richest blessing upon every single person today. Let your presence fill our hearts so that when we walk out the doors right now, we carry your grace and your love to our Ninevehs and that, Lord, we share willingly the message that you love lost humanity. And may we see that kind of revival that they saw um, in our community. And we, uh, Lord, see multiple people come to know Jesus right here, all because of you, because you use people like us for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Tabers will be right outside the door. If you've got any questions for them, get a prayer card. Love on these guys a little bit. Otherwise, we'll see you soon. God bless.